how we met is I was playing the piano at the missionary conference. So a year ago, over the summer, and um, and we were. I remember the first time I saw Carlin, I looked out Monday night, the band. We had practiced, we had rehearsed for months, and we got there, and we set everything up. And I look out over all of the missionaries that were there. I remember thinking, oh, they're such a great group of people. They all look tired, though, because it's like they've just, like, flown in and, you know, all their families and their kids. And and then I just, just see this bright, shining, happy, energetic face in the group. And I thought, he looks really happy to be here. <laughs> but we didn't have a conversation until uh, after we played on Friday night, so throughout the whole week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to interject there. It's not just when the band played. I had noticed Michelle from up front at the very beginning. I was like, she's cute, not wearing a ring. But this is not the time. I'm here for like a very short period of time. Everyone, including John MacArthur, is trying to set me up with people. So I'm just going to try and lay low. And uh, and so maybe I'll talk to her after one of these sessions. Maybe we can like be Facebook friends first or something like this. And then on the Friday night, the band sort of talked her into playing and singing a song that she had written and composed. So like this is Southern California. There's a lot of gifted musicians around, but not all. Of, you know, if you play well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can write. That you can write and uh, and compose. So. When I saw her, when I heard this song that really ministered to my heart, I was like, okay, if I was thinking that I ought to talk to her sometime, now is the time that I'm going to talk to her. And by God's providence, she sat right behind me for the sermon that night. (laughs) Well, my version of the story is a little different, but... I, I usually don't like to speak or sing in front of people. I like to hide behind the piano and let my fingers do all the, the singing. Um, but the band members had convinced me to sing a song that I had written, and this was my first time to really sing in public. So I was super nervous, and John MacArthur was there, and, and that, the house was packed, and, and um, I feel like I didn't do very well. And I remember just going back to my seat thinking, oh, after this session, I'm just going to go and curl up in the fetal position and not talk to anyone. So I picked up my books when we were done, just ready to head out the door, and Carlin turned around and asked me about the song that I had sung, and we started talking about Africa. So I had a great conversation, and um, I'll pass the ball back to you. Well, we talked about music and life and what God was doing around the world, and one thing led to another. I asked for her phone number, and then we started texting, and then we started talking, and then we started dating, and then we started talking about when could she visit Africa to see if she was sort of on board for the life that is the only life I have to offer. So that prompted her visit in January, which you guys are going to see some pictures from sort of at the end. So we'll leave that out as the bait to keep you paying attention for my boring part of the presentation. And then Michelle will talk about her part, um, her visit. So, so she came in January and then... I knew that I needed to come back to ask a very important question of her dad and then of her. So do you want to take it from here? Sure. So after my trip to Africa, Carlin wanted me to come back and think and pray for about six weeks and just really process everything that I had experienced and really seek the Lord and see if this is where he was calling me. So we did that. We fasted for Valentine's Day that weekend, and um, he called me on Monday and 
he told me that he loved me. And so that was, we both really, after seeking God's will in this, just really felt like God was leading us in that direction. And I, um, he told me that he was going to be booking a, a, a ticket back to the States, but he wanted to surprise me, so he wasn't going to tell me when. But he kind of gave me a time frame of three, four weeks or so. So that, I kind of felt in some ways like I was waiting for, uh, <laughs> you know, how we're waiting for our heavenly bridegroom to come any day. Like, my brothers were like, just get up and put your makeup on first thing in the morning. <laughs> I didn't know when he was going to be knocking on the door. Like, every moment I was like, he could just come right now. <laughs> so, then I was determined to try to figure it out without cheating. I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to cheat and read any emails I wasn't supposed to read or... But I wanted to, you know, try to try to figure out when he was coming, and uh, and so I I thought I was getting some clues. I thought he was going to maybe come on on a Wednesday of this one week, and he didn't show up. And so I thought, oh well, you know, it's probably not going to be until like next week then. And he told me he was going to call me on a Friday, and and you can't fake a call from Africa. It's uh, you can hear chickens in the background and the connections cutting in and out. And so I thought, oh, he's for sure in Africa. So Thursday I was getting ready to teach piano, and. The day was progressing as normal. Well, I mean, getting ready to teach piano involved shaving all of your sweaters. Do you want to tell them what that's about? <laughs> I, a friend had told me about this thing that she had purchased on Amazon where you can shave your sweaters with the little balls that pill up. And and so I had ordered like, it. Yeah, a sweater shaver. Like, who hasn't heard of a sweater shaver? And it came in the mail that morning, and I was so excited to try this out. And I was getting out all my sweaters and and shaving them, and I had this little pile of lint. But my <laughs> my roommate had been coordinating covertly with Carlin, and they were going to surprise me when I left that morning to teach. Well, my earlier lessons had been postponed and rescheduled, so Carlin was outside with flowers, waiting to surprise me, and I was inside shaving my sweaters and doing housework, and my roommate knew that Carlin was out waiting. She brought me a water and, like, a chair, and I was just like, do you want the Wi-Fi login so you can use your phone while you're here? So finally, when I had got ready for the day, she was she told Carlin, okay, you can go knock on the door. So... Uh, someone knocked on the door, and I went running to open it, just thinking that it was delivery or something. And I opened it, and Carlin's standing there with flowers. And, yeah, I, it was, like, kind of processing this because it was not supposed to happen that morning. And I guess I had a blank look on my face for a while, but I was overjoyed. We went hiking up. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. <laughs> We um, we went up Mission Peak, which is a mountain north from here, which is uh, one of, where we went on one of our first dates, and that's where he proposed. And and for some reason, she said yes, and so we got engaged in April, right when I got back, and then in July we were married here at Grace, and now we're back for a year, according to the missions policy of the first year of marriage should be at home, and then in summer of 2016 we'll move to do French language school in France, hoping to connect with the glasses. Uh, near, they're near Geneva, so we're hoping to be near to them as well. And then after 10 months, a year of language school there, we'll go back to Burundi. Uh, 
So it's about two years from here until back in Burundi, um, which are going to be rough, but it's all like the, all the preparation that has taken to get us here has been paying off in Burundi thus far. So we, we know and, and hope that all the preparation we do from here forward before getting back into the work there will be likewise blessed. So we're excited about that. Um, does that tell the story to adequate level of detail for the... For the yes, ma'am. Yeah, so I'm working part-time as an ER physician at L.A. County, USC, and then Verdugo Hills Hospital. That has USC has both of those contracts. And then um, we're doing uh, some seminary courses just to sort of like chip away at that a little bit at a time. Uh, and, well, seminary courses in French? No. Uh, these are here at Master's Seminary. I don't know that any of... Oh, and French. Well, Michelle's going to work on some French. I just continue corresponding with our French-speaking colleagues. And then we are serving at the USC Bible study. That's part of Crossroads. So that's kind of like the work-study ministry axis for now. So it's enough. It's enough. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk... If, that's a, if there are no more questions about that part of the story, <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about, about Burundi and uh, what's going on there. Thank you, Dave. I'm going to talk a little bit about what the ministry is like in Burundi, and then Michelle's going to talk a little bit about what daily life is like in Burundi, because she said that people like to know about that kind of stuff, more than just like technical details about where Burundi falls on the Global Hunger Index or something like that. So, but I wanted to start out with another story about a little girl, uh, a two-year-old who was brought to our hospital. This story happened after I presented last summer, so it's a fresh new story about, and it, it really typifies or exemplifies, I think, what it means to to be in the right place at the right time to serve the Lord. So this young this young child um, had, it's called aspirated. She had not swallowed, but she had breathed in a bean, like a dried frijole bean, haricot in French, and it had lodged in her right, like the, the main stem bronchus, which means that her entire right lung can no longer breathe. So if you can look at this x-ray, it's a little hard to see, but one side is kind of clear white and the other side is kind of blackish. So the clear white means that it's all full of fluid because that's the side that's blocked and black is the side that's getting air. So you can imagine if you took half of the lungs away from anybody, they would have a little bit of a problem. If you do it slowly over a long period of time, the other side can kind of grow and accommodate and you can keep living. But if you do this like quickly, as in you just aspirated on a bean, um, your body doesn't have enough time to adjust and you will expire at some point in time. So this family had gone to their local health clinic where they had done this x-ray and said, oh, we don't have any means by which to remove this bean from your lung to save your life. So we're going to send you to Kibuye Hope Hospital because we know that in this region, there's doctors there who can do all these kind of things. So they sent her to us, but this whole process took about 18 hours. So by the time we received her, she's breathing, you know, like 80 times a minute, basically as fast as your pulse is right now. Um, and she has, you see this look on her face? That's not the look of a happy camper, right? This is someone who's getting really, really tired. Um, our surgeon was gone at the time. He was back in the U.S. for some 
for some like very well-needed R&R to attend a conference. And so we had a visiting surgeon from Kenya to whom I went and said, what are we going to do? The only surgical option, because we don't have the little bronchoscope that goes in and can like retrieve the bean and pull it out going from your, like down your trachea in your throat. We don't have that tool. So the only thing we can do is cut open her chest and cut open the bronchus, the the breathing tube where the bean is stuck to try to pull the bean out. But this surgery has a 50% mortality in America. So you can imagine that in Burundi, the mortality is even higher. So if the, what we're going to offer this mother and father who both came with their daughter is we can do a surgery that is more likely than not to kill your child, or we can do nothing and your child will pretty much a hundred percent die. Um, or we can try to find some third alternative, some option where maybe there's a pediatric bronchoscope somewhere in the nation of Burundi or in the region of Burundi. But like, if we're going to go out of Burundi, this means flights, this means passports, which they don't have because they're rural people. This means an amount of money that they've never seen before. What are we going to do? And I'm an ER doctor. I like to save lives um, and to serve in that way. So I'm like in full doctor mode trying to figure out everything. And I'm, I'm calling everybody that I know to call. And by the providence of God, one of, the, one of the Burundian physicians who works at our hospital is also a pastor. Now, his training is really rudimentary. He doesn't have a lot of theological training, but he has enough. And we asked him to come and pray for this family as they're making this decision about whether to put their two-year-old under the knife that is more likely than not going to kill her. And he prayed a prayer that I will never forget in, in all my life because the first words out of his mouth in Kirundi, right? Because I don't speak Kirundi well enough to pray with this family who doesn't speak any language other than Kirundi. I asked him to pray so they would understand. And he prayed, which we both understood. He said, God, we thank you that you see us. And the verb in Kirundi for see is more than just like watch a television. It's more like that you observe us, that you regard us is the way that it translates. <clears throat> And that, I mean, you can imagine the tension that I was feeling in my heart and they were feeling in their hearts and everyone, everyone was on edge for this case. It all melted away. And there was a peace on our faces as the, as the caregivers um, who could show them now a different, a different faith, a different hope in life than just that we would find this thing. And I can't tell you exactly whom God used to provide because it's uh, against the policy of the agency that that person works for, for them to transport a Burundian patient. But there just so happened to be some people visiting our facility at that time who had an SUV. You can see it here. That's our anesthesiologist whom we convinced to go down in case she needed to be intubated and we would breathe for her. He's the only anesthesiologist we have at the hospital. I said, are you willing to go? Because it's going to be two and a half hours to get down to the capital city where we've found someone who has this pediatric bronchoscope and says he can do it as long as we send money, which we are going to send because it's like $60 to do this procedure that's going to save this kid's life. So Greg, our anesthesiologist, got in the back of this car. Both of their parents got in the car. We had one tank of oxygen. We had sort of like one setup to do the intubation. We gave it all to Greg, and he's sitting in the back seat with this little girl who's just breathing as fast as she can. And they tear out of there like a banshee. Um, 
they actually made it down to the capital in, in two hours, which is really, really fast, scary fast. And the the child got to the uh, sort of like the hospital where this one person who had a bronchoscope, it doesn't, I don't think it was actually a pediatric bronchoscope, but she was big enough that they could use the one they had. And they pulled out half of the bean that night. She started breathing better. And the next morning they went and got the rest of the bean out. And she survived because God answers prayer. I want to make that point. She survived because God answers prayer, not because of doctors who were there doing their thing, but because the Lord is taking care of these people. And that testimony with that physician, that Christian physician, who happened to be a pastor as well, but a Christian physician from Burundi to pray in Kirundi with that patient, that is the goal of what we're doing. That the gospel would go forward in the mouths of Burundians who are with people at that time of need. And I think you all, anyone who's been to a hospital, knows that when you're there, it's not because you want to be there, usually. It's because something's wrong and you need help. And when that person who's delivering that help even is willing to pray with you in Jesus' name, that is a testimony that goes in deep to your heart somewhere that other people don't get access to. And that's that's kind of the reason why medical missions and, and the education that we're doing is, that's on our heart. is so that people like Fulgence Yamouremier, that's that doctor's name, can care for people in these moments and share with them the good news of Christ, even in just that moment of prayer with them. So that's a story. Hopefully that I see it. I see, I see in your faces that like this resonates with you. You're like, I have a kid. And if my kid was going to die, that'd be so freaky. Okay. So let's go on to a lighter topic. Where in the world is Burundi? (laughs) Try to break it up. So Burundi is in central Africa. Um, It's that little tiny orange dot in the middle of Africa. It is one of the smallest nations in Africa. It and Rwanda are competing for being really small. But it is one of the most densely populated nations in Africa. There's over 10 million people. So it's like the population of Los Angeles County in an area that's just a little bit bigger than Los Angeles County with no sky rises. So a lot of L.A. County is desert, you know, like up by Lancaster and stuff. So that's how it works. The math works out. But it's a very densely populated nation. And I wrote here, can you guys read this little gray writing on the right? So it's gone through a series of inhabitants. The first are the pygmy people of Africa. They're called the Twa, which just means people. And uh, they got displaced by the Hutus, who then got displaced by the Tutsis, and then lived in kind of this three-tribe peace for a long time. And then those of you who've lived through the 90s probably remember that Rwanda had this whole genocidal violence between Hutus and Tutsis. That was Burundi's civil war spilling over into Rwanda. So in Burundi, it lasted for 12 years, whereas Rwanda, it was like around two years. Um, Fewer people died in Burundi because it wasn't as acute and well-organized of a genocide, but it was Hutu on Tutsi violence and vice versa. And then uh, historically, the Germans were the first colonialists to arrive in sort of that part of Central Africa. But after World War I, part of reparations repayments, you guys remember this from the dark recesses of high school history, reparations repayments for Sai, Germany had to give over all of its colonial holdings. Central Africa went to the Belgians. So they got parts of Congo, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi. And so then the Belgians ruled until the 60s, and that's when it became Burundi, an independent nation, a pseudo-democracy um, under with the same three tribes and then a sort of smattering of expatriates. Burundians are poor and hungry. Here's your random factoids 
There's no way that you can encapsulate poverty and hunger into just a few statistics. But if there were, say, like a global ranking of all the hungry, of like how hungry nations are, how much food shortage or undernourishment there is, it'd be called the Global Hunger Index. And in 2013 and 2014, Burundi is the hungriest nation in the world, according to that Global Hunger Index. And what's more alarming is that Burundi's numbers are climbing. So it's getting hungrier. Already 60% of kids are so severely malnourished in their first five years that they will never achieve their full intellectual or sort of stature physical potential. It's called stunting. And that's 58% of kids in Burundi. So there's a brain drain when the educated people leave the country, but there's also this front-end brain drain, which is that no, like the majority of people never get to their full IQ. Um, and as far as poverty goes, there's a million ways to measure this. The UN Development Index puts Burundi at number 180 out of 187 nations, so it's pretty low. It's pretty much – sorry, Mom, it's like Congo. That's worse off. Um, and then the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank rank Burundi as second to last in GDP per capita. And the only one that's worse is Malawi. So I think you guys are going to have the fluorines maybe? You have – so if we go back, are you able to see this? So this is Malawi here, and this is Burundi here. So this is like Malawi. So they're, they're not exactly bordering, but here's Tanzania is the country that connects the two. So, yeah, Malawi. I didn't, they, uh, you know, last year it was Burundi, and then Malawi was second to last. So I don't know what's going on with Malawi, but the heirs and the... The fluorines, and they all got to get their act together. <laughs> all right. What's that? There's more, there's more help coming. Yeah, that's excellent. They'll single-handedly increase the GDP per capita. Because, <laughs> so as missionaries, um, we take uh, – I'm, you know, I'm a physician. I'm an ER physician in the States. There's a little bit of a pay cut to become a missionary doctor in Burundi. But even with that pay cut, we are still in the top, like, 5% of earners in Burundi as missionaries. Living below the poverty line in America, we are rich in Burundi. So it's, that gives you kind of a sense of, like, wow, there really is a big gap. Um, but this one, this, I, this picture doesn't really go with the words that, is, that are underneath it. But I couldn't leave – this guy's name is Moses. I couldn't leave Moses out. He, you can maybe see that he's kind of reaching his toes on the left. He was in a cast for six weeks in the hospital because he broke his femur um, in traction. But he's like the cutest kid ever, as you can tell. And he would always smile from ear to ear whenever I would see him and say hi to him in the mornings. So that's another good opportunity for the gospel because these kids are in traction for six weeks. They can't go to school. But we have chaplains and Christian educators. So, like, they're literally a captive audience. They are chained to the bed. So you can tell them whatever you want. And so we tell them about Jesus. Um, but malaria and malnutrition and trauma and other preventable causes of death kill thousands of Burundians, like tens of thousands of Burundians every year. And many of those people are not going to heaven when they die. So this is not the only reason that we go. We go because the, the glory of God demands it, but the good of man also requires it. So that's part of where we go or why we go. And that's, I'm giving you a picture of the team minus Michelle, because at the taking of this picture, she wasn't actually technically part of the team yet, but we'll have to Photoshop her in at some point in time. Um, we're six physicians, 
two teacher wives, now a music teacher wife, and eight kids. And we're about to grow much bigger. Michelle's going to talk about that. So I'll leave that to you. But um, Jesus did this, right? He went into all the cities and villages preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven and healing all the sick of their diseases and illnesses. Like, this compassion and preaching always go together in the ministry of Christ because it shows us something about God. Because God cares for us as human beings, as, as, you know, souls wrapped in dust. He still cares about all the parts of us, all the constituent parts. We're one whole. And so we want to give that care to everyone. Um, and that comes down to teaching, treating, and training, which is conveniently alliterated, because I know you guys love three-point outlines with alliteration. I grew up at Grace Community Church. I know about this. But we're there to teach the Word of God, to treat the ill and injured of Burundi, and to train up the next generation of medical missionaries from Africa for Africa so that they can replicate what we're doing. And it's, ha- it's like working. This is the crazy thing. I've, we've been there for two years, and it's working. This is a picture of a young lady named Santiana. She, she's one of the first graduates of the, of the Christian medical school that we're the professors of. And she's worked at, she worked at Kibuye during her medical training. She wants to go on to become an emergency physician. There's no training programs for that in the nation. So she's looking around. She actually got accepted to a program in Uganda, which is not accredited. So we advised her not to go there and to search for another sort of more established program so that she could come back with real credentials. Um, and then she got in a car accident and almost died. So she's recovering right now. She's doing fine. She can walk again. But um, but this is happening, right? Here's Santiana. There's a group, you know, we're six doctors on our team. There's a group of six in the class that's going to graduate this December who came to us last year in about February and said, we want to do what you guys are doing, but for our own people in Burundi, how do we do that? You know, they're they're all attending our Bible study. They're engaged. They're the... Five out of the six are the top five in their class. The sixth one is in the top ten in their class. So they're brilliant students. They love the Lord. They've started like a, I guess we'd call it like a needy patient fund almost, so that the medical students can all donate and they'll go give clothes to the patients in the hospital who don't have anything because they grew up in the city, which is poor. Bujumbura, the capital city, is poor. But Kibuye, where we are, the rural area, is a kind of poverty that they haven't even considered. Um, Santiana was telling me that she, when she was working at Kibuye, walked somewhere to buy a soda. And she walked by a patch that was one meter by one meter, and it was fenced in, like a patch of farm. That was one meter, so like three feet by three feet, and it was patched, it was like fenced in. And she said, why did anybody put a fence around three feet by three feet? Like, this is ten square feet of, of turf. Um... And so she asked, and one of the people said, well, that's all that's left after all of the kids got their part of the farm divided to them as an inheritance. And she's like, you can't grow enough beans on a meter by meter to feed a family for, like, even a day. And they're like, yeah, but that's all they have. So what are they going to do? They can't sell it. I mean, that's that's the only sort of, like, lifeline they have left in their family. So she that blew her away as a Burundian, realizing how poor the Kibuye Burundians are. So these six are Tutsis, grew up in the capital, but say we want to go serve the people of our own country rurally, which means that it's a little bit cross-cultural because it's a, it's a Hutu majority. So what they're going to say is we're going to leave 
sort of like the comfortable living that our parents have provided for us in the capital and the education and use the education that they've paid for for us to go serve the tribe that 10 years ago was slaughtering us in genocidal violence. Like this is, there's no way that this is, uh, this is God doing it and we're just there. And so they're asking us, how do we do that? And we're like, we don't really know. I mean, what do your parents say about this? And 201, their parents have gotten on board that this is a good thing that the Lord is doing in their hearts. And then we said, what do your churches think? And they're like, our churches have no idea. No Burundian church has ever sent a missionary as far as we know. Because they've always been on the receiving end. And now it's like, isn't this exciting? Like six, they're, they're like, we want to do it as a team. We want to stay together because we think we can, we can make a bigger impact and we can encourage each other and stay together as a team rather than as individuals. And, and we're saying like, that's exactly what we thought when we were going to Burundi. So we thought maybe in 20 years, we'd have found enough people to kind of replace ourselves. And maybe in two years, we already have a group coming up through the ranks. Sure. So um, we were all, essentially all of us, were at some phase of training at the University of Michigan or in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the same time, and going to the same church there and participating in the Christian Medical Association, the Christian Medical Dental Association. And we all had a heart for missions, and we all had a heart to do educational missions, to not just care for individual patients, but to train up those who would come behind us and take over the work when we left. And so we would... How many of you guys have ever lived in a place with seasons? Like, a, you know, like a cold season where there might even be snow on the ground, like leaves change colors, flowers bloom out of a barren wasteland. Yeah, so Michigan is like that, um, except that the sun doesn't shine, like, all winter long. It's terrible as a Californian. Um, so we were all there, and you know, like, in the winter time, and even other times, you sit around at each other's homes at night, and you drink coffee or cocoa or tea or whatever and play cards or board games or just talk and we would just we would do this and we would talk and like wouldn't it be great if god called us all together like so we could go to this to the same place and everyone you know we know we work well together because we've already worked together in the hospitals we know we have the same theology and vision for mission like what if god called all of us to the same place at the same time wouldn't that be so cool and at some point in time we're like okay we need to either stop talking like this or we need to start pursuing this as a reality and so that's when we started, that was towards the end of um, my medical school. We started pursuing this as an option for all of us to do it together. And really, the Lord opened all the doors. Um, Alyssa Feaster is our med peds doctor. She joined later because um, she was stationed in Kenya with the rest of the team and kind of fell in love with this team concept. But um, yeah, God opened the doors. We actually, for Burundi, we looked around at where is a hospital that could absorb all of us at once because we're six doctors now. Um, and so that would be, have to be a relatively established hospital, but without staff. And then, so, you know, <laughs> there's actually, you guys laugh, but there's, there's actually way more of those in Africa than you would imagine. And so then we, and then we wanted somewhere where there was educational components, so like a medical school with no faculty. Again, you laugh, but it's not that uncommon. There was like four different places that fit all these criteria for us. And then we, we kind of checked them all out and we fell in love with Burundi because it was definitely, you know, these are the least, the least of these are found in Burundi. And the Christian medical school at a mission hospital with a long standing history of service was, it was too good to pass up. 
And so that's when we went to Burundi. We decided we were going to go to Burundi. And then we're like, okay, now who's going to send us? Now that we, like, formed our own team and, like, found our own field. Like, <laughs> missions, do you want to sign up for us? Um, so we did. We're sent through Surge, but, I'm, you know, we're sent by grace. So GMI thus far has not yet ventured into the field of medical missions. Um, maybe someday soon. But um, for now, it's good because the whole team is all together. Even though they've come from different places, they're sending their home churches can be their sending churches, but we're all on the same team with the same sort of logistics coordinating. So that's a brief of how we got there. Um, and then this is my second to last slide, but this is just to say that I just want to make sure that that God is the one who gets the glory for doing this. Like those students... You know, we were we were there, and we were trying with a Bible study for the medical students, with discipleship opportunities for the medical students, praying with patients in the hospital, doing Christian mission with our whole lives in front of these students. But God is the one who works in their hearts and puts this burden for Burundi in the hearts of Burundians. And he's worthy of all of this. Like, it's not a... a no one is sacrificing in this equation. I think I want to... I want to say that. Like, I know I just talk about how poor and sick and needy Burundi is, but it is not a sacrifice to go and serve because our Lord has done way more than that for us. And he blesses us so richly. And the reason, like I wrote it here, he died for Burundians and we go that he might receive the thanks and glory he deserves. I just want to leave you with that and this quote from Frederick Buechner because I know that sometimes there are people here who are considering what if God is calling me to do something a little bit crazy or calling my family to do something a little bit crazy for him. And maybe you have a heart for medicine, maybe you have a heart for a mission, or you obviously have a heart for missions, you're here. But whatever it is that the Lord is putting on your heart, I just want to encourage you with this quote from Frederick Buechner, your calling is where the world's great need meets your great gladness. And it, obviously in a Christian context, this is the Lord gives us gifts and talents and opportunities, and he has a plan for how those get used. And the crazy thing is that it makes our hearts sing, and it serves the world when we're following in, in his footsteps in the, in the plan that he's laid out for us. So that's kind of my spiel about the, the work in Burundi. But now I'm going to give it over to Michelle, who's going to tell you about life in Burundi. Okay. Well, I know that we're a little low on time, so I'll just try to go through this quickly. Um, so when I'll just give you a, sh- a snapshot of what it's like when you fly into the capital, Bujumbura, you land and you will um, see lots of traffic, lots of people milling around. It seems like chaos. The drivers are very skilled. I was in awe of Carlin maneuvering through cattle and people and bicycles and it's there, there are pretty much no rules of traffic there, just survival. And <laughs> so we, um, but very quickly um, on the drive up to Kabuye, um, you will depart from the city and start getting into the more rural area. And it's a very beautiful country. Um, these are some eucalyptus groves that we drive through. Um, you'll pass, uh, this is the local transportation of bananas. This is a bicyclist. And these are very heavy, and they will ride up these very steep mountain roads multiple times per day. So the Burundians are very hard workers. 
Here's another little snapshot of um, how they transport the poultry there. Chicken. These are live chickens. There's another 40 chickens off the back of the bike. You can't see them here. Yeah. Um, you'll pass little local uh, produce uh, outdoor markets where they are selling sweet potatoes and avocados and um, all organic. <laughs> it's a very healthy lifestyle. Pesticide-free. Pesticide-free, homegrown. Free-range, cage-free, <laughs> farm-to-table. Um, this is the, the road that you turn off to go up to the little town where um, called Kabuye, where the hospital and where all the doctors live. Uh, so it's, it's beautiful. Um, this is during, I, I visited during the wet time of year, the wet season, so everything was beautiful and green. Um, they do have a dry time of year, and everything dries out, and, and people really suffer for want of water. Uh, you can see the picture of the lady carrying um, the sticks. They carry everything on their heads. Um, even the little children will, will carry large loads of um, baskets or, or sticks. Um, and this is just a, a snapshot of what it looks like behind the hospital. There are some little shops there. These children are playing. The kids don't have any toys, but they will make toys out of whatever they find. This is a bucket lid and a stick. And he, they were just laughing and having the most fun with this homemade toy. Um, these are some other children that are walking to get water. So the the local Africans will have to walk and get water from, from a well. They don't have water that's taken to their homes. So it's kind of the whole family chips in and helps, and, and the kids are working very hard as well as the adults. Um, this is the local uh, school, and from where all the missionaries have built their homes, the little complex of missionary homes with, with a, a wall around it, this school is within a, a, a one-minute walk, and you can often in the morning hear them um, chanting and singing to the teachers. They will have drum practices outside, so you can hear the, the rhythm of the drums being played. You can hear the, the shouts of the children during recess. They love to have their picture taken, so if you walk up, which I did here with the camera, they would crowd around, and then you would take their picture, and then they would all want to see their picture, and then just hoots and hollers. Very, very excited about that. Um, I had the opportunity to teach English in one of their classes. The, the classes are they consist of around 60 kids per classroom. Um, they are very well-behaved, very poor. Often many of them don't have any shoes. Their clothes are just um, in, pretty much in rags and... Uh, so, but they are very respectful. As soon as you walk in the door, the whole entire class in unison says in English, "Good morning, teacher," and they're they're just beaming, smiling faces. It's more like "Good morning, teacher." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they know some some phrases in English, and um, one of them is "How are you." And, and if you respond, fine, how are you? They just say, how are you back <laughs> often? <laughs> um, so one of the opportunities that the missionary kids have to be involved at the local hospital is they will go up and, as Carlin was saying, that in, in the recovery units, they have um, children and even adults that will have to stay there for periods of time as they recover. So we take little pieces of crayon that, are, that have been donated, even just little teeny little fragments of crayons and coloring books, and even the adults will want to color. And um, this is... Uh, 
Heather, or no, um, let's see, Anna, Anna Fader, the surgeon's daughter, is up here teaching one of the kids, uh, I think it's um, uh, uh, just a game that she had with some string. And uh, even the adults were very excited about that. I took some crayons up and some paper and came back the next day to visit some of the patients. And this boy on both sides of the paper had drawn this elaborate house. On the other side, it was a car colored in every little detail. So they, they just treasure that. And this little girl, um, when I first walked in, some of these kids have never even seen a white person before. So they are, they, they look, their face just has terror. What is yeah. wrong with that person's skin? Yeah. <laughs> Why is their hair so straight? Yeah. And she just looked at me. She started crying. So I, I talked with her. Her mother was very friendly um, and gave her some crayons and worked with her for a little bit. And the next day, she was my best buddy. She just loved it. And she had this beaming smile. They warm up to you very quickly. So it's just a neat opportunity for even those of us who are not physicians to be involved with the hospital and the patients there. This is just a snapshot of the church um, in between where the housing complex is, where all the missionaries live, and the hospital. It's about a five-minute walk, and in between that is a big lawn area, and this church is in the middle of that. And to the left of this church, they're building a, a nice big new church that's under construction. So, But this is the inside of the, the older church. On Sunday mornings, um, People from all over will come and sit on these hard wood pews for hours. It starts at 9 in the morning, and it or about 9.30, and it usually goes until about maybe 1 or 2. Announcements last for an hour and a half. Worship time is like an hour and a half. Maybe it just... They sing and sing and sing, and and, um, and even the little children are there, and the babies are on there, the women, the, the backs. And so the whole family participates. Um... This is a picture of inside one of the missionary homes. We have a a local outreach to the medical students, a Bible study, a weekly Bible study that's led by the doctors and and Carlin. They will take turns leading the the lessons. So it gives the medical students a chance to see um, the doctors who they are learning medicine from also um, see their walk with the Lord and be able to have an impact on them spiritually. Um, here are some of the team children. When I visited, there were nine. When we go back in two years, there will be 21. There, we had a couple families. Maybe 22. <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> and there are 19 adults. So I, what, there will be 19 adults. My um, my joy, what I hope, is to be able to teach piano to these team children I taught when I was there in January and just enjoyed it so very much. They have one piano, acoustic piano, a keyboard already at um, uh, at the Kabuya Town, and then possibly maybe in the future we'll bring over some more instruments. But And then maybe, I don't know, it was like a wild and crazy dream. I don't know if it will be realized someday, but... I um, was thinking of possibly praying about maybe opening a music school for the African children. They are very musical. Their language is tonal, so they have a tonal, uh, an ear. Whenever they sing, they're on pitch. They have beautiful harmonies, but they've never had music instruction. They're very poor. None of them have any instruments other than uh, drums, and, and those are played primarily by the men. The women don't really participate in that. So... This is a a cooking class that we had with the missionary kids, the team kids. And here's one of the girls, Anna, and her piano lesson on the keyboard. Keyboard's a little bit more problematic because power is not always consistent there. 
when you wake up in the morning, you turn the light on, and if there's power, yay! If there's not, that's very common as well. Uh, sometimes there's water, sometimes there's not. You just have to be very flexible. Um, in the morning, one of the things that I loved in, was the, the African alarm clock. At around 5.30 or 6, you have its silence, and then a chorus of birds in the trees just start singing and chirping, and it's just the most beautiful sound. Um, and uh, so that's a snapshot into life in Kibuye.